Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you a guest from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Rana Elkayubi, CEO Effectiva, and the author of Girl Decoded, a scientist's quest to reclaim our humanity by bringing emotional intelligence to technology. Welcome to the show, Rana. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. And actually, I've noticed this because I'm a spy, that today is an anniversary of yours, right? Uh, this, so is, this is an anniversary of mine. I've uh, been CEO at Affectiva for four years. Congratulations. Thank you. I really wanted to note that because your journey to become CEO is a fairly significant part of the book. And so when I noticed that you were celebrating that, it was interesting to me because as someone who just read the book, like I finished it about a week ago, mm-hmm. I was like, she just became CEO. And, you know, in the way I read it, it was like, oh, that just happened, you know, 15 pages ago. But you've actually been CEO for four years, right? I have. I have. And you're right. It was such a defining moment in my career and, and also how I kind of think about myself. And yeah, totally. It was a key defining moment. So shall I share? Share more about it? Well, you know what? I wanted to acknowledge the anniversary, but we're going to get to the CEO stuff. But I think I want the listeners to have the same journey that I had, you know, because the book starts with you in your childhood, right? You growing up, you know, in Egypt, in Cairo, and also in other places, right? You were in Kuwait, you're in other parts of the world. So in the U.S., you know, we would call that like an army brat experience, right? People who had family in the military, they travel a lot to different places, different bases. And so when I was reading that part of the experience, it sounded very similar to that. So I think that's a good place to start, like kind of what lessons were learned in that sort of non-traditional, but yet traditional upbringing. Yeah. Yeah. So I am originally Egyptian. I was born in Cairo. My two parents grew up in Egypt. And then they had the opportunity to move to Kuwait for work. So they're both technologists. They actually met in the 70s in a programming class. My dad taught programming and my mom signed up for this random programming class. And he tried to date her and she said no. So he married her instead. (laughs) And they moved to Kuwait and we were there until the first Gulf War. And then we moved to Abu Dhabi and then back to Egypt. And throughout all of that, my parents were kind of very, you know, conservative in ways, you know, very strict gender roles. I have two younger sisters and there were a lot of things we weren't allowed to do as girls, but at the same time, very liberal and very pro-education. Like my parents were all about education, not just schools, but we traveled a lot as a family. And I think that really shaped who I am. We have this openness to other cultures and openness to other people. And honestly, I think that's why I ended up in the United States, because I I don't fear the other. I love the other. And that's all because of uh, my upbringing. Now, that's a, a really interesting point that one can straddle these lines between traditional and non-traditional, oftentimes in popular culture, people think, particularly when we're talking about cultures in the Middle East, Muslim cultures, that it's one way or the other, 
right? Like there's very little space in, I think, the stories that we tell here in the West that allow for nuance. And there was a lot of nuance in your story. You know, you one episode that leaped out to me was when you were studying and you had the the study sessions that went late. And then there was a confrontation with your with your dad about that. Yeah, that's like the walk of shame. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so absolutely. Again, my dad was so pro-education. So I was an undergrad. I studied computer science as an undergraduate at the American University in Cairo. Uh, it's, it's the only liberal arts school at the time in the Middle East. And as part of my graduation project, I had to build kind of a, a software system. And at the time, you couldn't do this on your laptop at home. You had to actually be in the computer lab. So my team members and I would finish our classes during the day and then head to the lab in the evening and overnight, like spend the, the night programming. And then at 4 or 5 a.m., we would head home to sleep for a couple of hours. So unbeknownst to me, and I couldn't drive at the time because I started university when I was 15. So I was about 17 at the time. So I didn't have my driver's license. So one of the guy members of the team would drive me home. So unbeknownst to me, a neighbor saw me, would see me routinely step out of this guy's car at four in the morning. And he tipped my dad and he was like, your daughter, like, what's your daughter up to at four in the morning with this guy? And my dad was absolutely livid, livid. I will never forget this. We were driving in his car and he was so angry. I thought we were just going to crash and die. <laughs> and he said, you know, what will the neighbors think? Like, what are you doing? And I was like, dad, you know, I'm working. And and he was like, change majors. I don't care. And I was literally a few months away from graduation. And But I think my mom stepped in behind the scenes and we reached a nice kind of agreement where I had a curfew of about 10 p.m. My team members were fine with it. And I graduated top of my class. So it has a happy ending. But yeah, that is an example where I think my parents really had to struggle and like in the same way I did and reconcile these traditions and very deeply ingrained cultural norms with aspirations to be go-getters and make things happen, like you said in, in your intro. And there's a lot of bravery, I think, in these stories. Like they're anecdotes pulled from your life, but you know, it's not easy to confront the expectations of our family, to confront expectations of larger society. Like how did you sort of manage to continuously do that, right? Like it wasn't just an academic thing. It was on many levels as it, you know, I'm, I'm being a little cagey because I don't want to give away the entire book, but you know, it was something that came up often right. throughout the book. And I think one thing you said really kind of resonates with me. I think the West kind of oversimplifies the narrative of a Muslim family or a woman in the Middle East. And I just wanted to tell my story and show that there are nuances to your point. And it's not just one narrative or the other. I love my parents. I, I love them to death. And they've been super supportive of my journey, but not without tensions. You know what I mean? And I also, I'm so proud of my heritage. I'm so proud that I'm Egyptian and I'm Muslim. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that I'm all in with how things are being done or how, you know, all these cultural norms. So it is very nuanced and subtle and complex. Yeah, it makes and, sense, I think. <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe that's why it resonates because I, you know, I'm not all in on a lot of stuff that happens here. So, and, totally, and, right? and everyone who knows me knows that very, very well. So, so I always relate to that type of story. I want to start to get into the, the ideas that are tackled in the book, the notions of empathy, the notions of emotional connectivity. And one of the things I kind of jotted down this example 
around how we connect things to to one another. Because one of the challenges that you faced early on was how do we find connection in through technology with using computers? And this is when you were in school. And at that time, they would, they, we didn't have this, right? Where we were able to look at one another and see one another. And I compare that, and this is a family story of my own. My parents met as pen pals. So oh, they, cool. yeah, old, super old school notebook style, right? So they just like exchanged these letters for a long time until they finally met and then, you know, off to the races, right? And so I'm curious why you think there are such differences in like a written note, a letter, something that can be just as long distant as compared to the technology that we use. Like, why does the technology seem like it has intrinsic barriers that maybe pen and paper don't, you know, using my example of my parents, but many people wrote letters during the thousands of years, right? Hundreds of years at least. Yeah, I think what fascinates me about technology and it's what got me into computer science in the first place, it's almost not about the technology, but it's how technology is a mediator for human to human connection and communication. And if you look at how people communicate, the vast majority of our natural communication is nonverbal. So it's only like 10% or so of, of how we communicate is through the choice of words. And if you have the option, about 90% of it is nonverbal. So it's facial expressions, vocal intonations, like how much energy is in your voice, your hand gestures, which I use a lot of. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so that's like really what makes for a rich, you know, human interaction. What is interesting about technology-mediated communication is that it's devoid of all these nonverbal signals. It's very transactional. It's very like, and it's very subject to misinterpretation. Like, yes, of course we text, but is it like being a pen pal? I don't think so because in a pen pal, you, you know, you're writing a letter, you're really expressing, you're you're making up for the loss of nonverbals by the use of words. Very different than quick text messages where you know, unless you clearly use emojis. To, to make it clear how you feel, it's very open to misinterpretation. And that's text and email and Slack messages. I mean, you can, you can generalize it across all of our communications. So I think what got me into this, I had this aha moment when I first you know, moved from Egypt to Cambridge University to do my PhD. I just realized that a lot of my communication back then was text-based and a lot of my rich nonverbal signals disappeared in cyberspace. And yeah, and that got me thinking, what if we could redesign technology so that it can capture these emotion signals? And how would that transform human-machine interaction, but also fundamentally human connections? And that journey, that tying these emotions together, like this was laborious type of work. And, you know, there's an episode in the book where you're in Cambridge and you, and you actually use the database of um, the professor who was focused on like autism. So this idea of even then taking and collaborating across disciplines. And it seems like that's an idea, like in my work as an anthropologist, I talk about de-siloing. Like, mm -hmm. even though I have a finance background, all these different things, it's more important to understand discon seemingly disconnected places. And it seems like that was a tremendous leap forward for your work to access someone who on the surface might seem disconnected from what you were really focused on. Yeah, I'm a strong believer that innovation happens at the intersection of disciplines. And you're right, most often 
we're just stuck in our silos and we're not talking, you know, across disciplines. And that's been so true in my life over and over again. Like with, you know, when I first went to Cambridge and I was a PhD student, I presented to our lab and I said, you know, I'm, I, I really want to teach machines how to understand emotions. And somebody in the audience said, my brother has autism and he struggles with understanding people's emotions. You should, maybe there's something there. And sure enough, I, you know, I could have ignored that comment, but I didn't. I was intrigued. And that led me down a path where I met Professor Simon Baron Cohen, who headed the research center for autism at Cambridge. And he said, oh, we're building a database for emotions for autistic kids, why don't you use it, you know, take the database and use it to train your machine how to read emotions. And that was a, that was an amazing moment of generosity on his end, because there was no way I could replicate that amount of data. It was so expensive and required years of work. So he kind of leapfrogged my career by a few years by being so generous and sharing. I always remember that moment. And when people reach out and they want access to our technology for something even, you know, that is powerful, but we're not focused on, I try to make exceptions and, and make it available. Yeah. And that stuck out to me as well, right? Like you talk about a situation with a young woman, I believe she was in the Midwest. I might be misremembering that piece of it, but in any case, wherever she was geographically, like she was a high school student, had reached out to talk to you or access some of your work with a project she was working on. And there was an, an instant piece of generosity there. And how how have you baked that into the, the culture of, of Effectiva? It seems like it's part of your value system. It comes up quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. And so she's a rock star, Erin Smith. She emailed us. It was so funny. She emailed, you know, sales at affectiva.com. <laughs> and she said, I'm a high school sophomore, I think she was at the time, and I'm really interested in Parkinson's disease, and I think your technology can help. Like, can I buy it, right? <laughs> and of course, we're used to, we're a B2B company, so, you know, our license is, you know, it's not, you know, anyways, our head of sales approached me and she said, what do I do with this? Like, she can't afford our technology. Yeah. And again, I, it was a decision moment. I could have said, nah, just say sorry, whatever. And then I just thought about it and I was just, this young woman, you know, she found us. She was curious enough to look for us, found us, emailed us. And, you know, she's going down this path. I don't want to be the one to kill it. So, yes. so I said, you know what, let's give her access to our technology and a few hours of support to get her up and running. And, you know, sure enough, a few months later, she had partnered with the Michael J. Fox Foundation to look at Parkinson's patients. And she's now a student at Stanford taking, you know, started a company. She's amazing, right? And again, it just reminds me that innovation can come out from anywhere. It's not age dependent. It's not ethnicity dependent. It's not gender dependent. And I really see my role, you know, I've been fortunate in that people supported me on my journey and I definitely want to make sure I pay it forward. And, and if I can do a little bit to, you know, jumpstart people on their journeys, I, I do that. And I feel like I role model that for the rest of our company. And I hope that everybody does that as well. It's part of, it is part of who we are. Yeah. It's important to have these types of relationships and, you know, emotion is clearly at the core of everything that you do. And, you know, emotion is in terms of technology is still, you know, despite all the work, it's still something that we're trying to work out and perfect and make better. You know, what are, are some of the primary challenges that you still see persisting in, in the field? Because in, in some spaces, I think there's, you know, still tremendous gaps in how these things are being rolled out. 
how they affect various communities. And there's a, a lot of issues. Yeah, it's a very nascent field where it's a very young field. We're right at the beginning of it. But I think that makes it exciting. So what makes this really complex is emotions are complex. So, you know, the way the technology works is we use deep learning and computer vision, like basically computer science techniques that find a face, allow you to track a face and then identify what facial expressions are happening. Are you smiling? Are you smirking? Are you frowning? And then you take all of this and kind of these are the building blocks of an emotional or mental experience, right? So you can then map it into, oh, like, you know, nodding his head, like he seems interested or he looks confused or he's bored to death. (laughs) (laughs) You're not. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really complex. It's person dependent. I mean, it's not like specifically person dependent, but, you know, people express in different ways. There are cultural differences. So we have to be very thoughtful and we have to get the right data. So my biggest concern in this area of research is the algorithmic bias. There's already been systems out there that don't work well on, say, women of color. So they would be trained a majority of, you know, middle-aged white guys, and then you you test the algorithm on me and it just won't work because it mm-hmm. has enough examples of people that look like me. So we are very careful about that and we take a very thoughtful and mindful approach to avoid algorithmic bias because we don't want to mirror kind of the societal biases in these algorithms and then deploy them at scale. That would be problematic. And how do you adjust for that? Like, I remember there's a story about, I think in China, where people were accessing one of the tools, but because there was a manager or supervisor there, there was something that was giving you false readings. And I think it was something about authority. And so using that one example, but then again, How does one adjust for those types of biases that are largely cultural based? You know, if I think about myself in a corporate environment as a black guy, right? Mm -hmm. My face very rarely exhibited what I felt inside, right? Because you learn, you know, we call it code switching. Like you learn how to exist within this one space, but then have your, your regular space and that voice, tone, facial expressions. There's a lot of different things that go into it. So I'm curious about how you adjust for those cultural norms, even within societies that are, they would seemingly kind of fall into the same pot, right? Yeah. And we have a ton of data. So, so far we have over nine and a half million facial responses from 90 countries around the world. So it's very diverse. The key is the diversity of the data. And in my opinion, the diversity of the team that's designing these algorithms. So, you know, in one instance, this is not in the book, but we're doing some work for the automotive industry Mm -hmm. and a few women on our team who are based in Cairo and they wear the hijab, they wear a head covering. And they said, there's nobody in this data set that looks like us. And that was a total blind spot. It was not we didn't do that in on purpose. It was just a blind spot because people design for what they know and they think, you know, right? We're all kind of thinking we have a priori experiences that govern how we think. So that was an example where the diversity of the team really mattered and they were able to raise a concern about the diversity of the data. So I try to really think about it in terms of quality of the data, but honestly, it's all about the diversity of the team. So I always say diversity and inclusion isn't just like a nice to have, like it's not just the right thing to do. It's almost a business imperative in AI. And do you see a time when we're going to start to see, or, or maybe these things are forming where there's industry standards, there's industry norms, because as a lay person, right? Like I am not 
deeply engaged in this on a day-to-day basis, but I look at these issues as it pertains to culture, politics, you know, ideas of like deep fakes and things like that. Do you see a, a role for some sort of industry standards or specifications so we we have some sort of, you know, agreed upon guidelines while also leaving room for innovation and, and all the rest of the things that have got us this far to begin with? Yes. So I'm a huge advocate of what we call thoughtful regulation. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I really think consumers need to have a louder voice in this conversation. So I wanted to make the science and the technology accessible to a non-expert so that they can participate in this dialogue, right? There are organizations, so we're part of a consortium called the Partnership on AI, and it's all about developing ethical AI that benefits society. And my particular working committee is called FATE, so Fair, Accountable, Transparent, and Ethical AI. So we're trying to build these best practices for other tech companies and AI innovators and thought leaders. And what is really cool about this consortium, it's not just tech people talking to each other. We have ACLU is a member, Amnesty International is a member. There are other civil liberty organizations that are part of, of this conversation. So I think we just need more voices around the table and we definitely need the consumer power to basically vote with their feet, right? If consumers can say, well, I'm not going to engage with this technology platform because they're not ethical and they don't respect data privacy, but I will with this other company because they do, then I think that will drive how this technology gets built. And even mentioning consumers, right? Like, you know, in my mind, I think there's a huge gap in terms of what consumers really know and understand. You know, I I think about, you know, back in the day when people had forms for credit cards, right? You get to college and the minute you get there's like a t-shirt, a water bottle and like a credit card form, right? right? As, (laughs) As they try to like hook you in and no one ever reads the form. And then, you know, the disaster ensues, right? As parents back home start to get big credit card bills that they didn't know their kids had. And so I use that as an example to think about so much we see in, in technology when people download apps or access websites or, you know, there's the long list of things and you just click yes, so you can just kind of move on. So in a certain extent, consumers, I'm not saying consumers can't be trusted, but there is, a, I think, a low information pool yep. due to time and confusing messages, right? Like it's not like any of those things are really clear when you read them. So how do we bridge that gap a little bit. Can it be bridged? Yes, it ought to be bridged. And the way to do this is with transparency. You are absolutely right. As consumers, we are signing all of these agreements and we have no idea what data is being collected. Where is it going? How is it being used? Who's seeing it, right? Like, And I just think that's not good enough. So for example, when we collect our data, which requires access to a video camera, we still have the five page legalese, but we also just have a plain English paragraph that says, hey, we're about to turn the camera on. We're going to like, you know, identify your facial expressions. Here's how we're gonna use the data. And by the way, it's not recorded. Do you know what I mean? And, Mm -hmm. And like outline it in plain English. And I think we need a lot more of that kind of transparency because that's how you build trust. And right now there is very little trust. And I think consumers are waking up to the fact that, oh my goodness, all of this data is being tracked and recorded and, you know, and and kind of not manipulated, but like monetized. Yeah. And and I think, you know, that's not going to be, that should not be acceptable. 
And on the flip side of that, you have obviously Silicon Valley, which we use, we'll use that as a catch-all phrase for technology, right? Or those heavily engaged in technology, which is, that can be academics, that can be organization companies, VCs, all of these ecosystems. I'm just dumping them into Silicon Valley just for clarity. Now, that industry and community also has interest in this as well. And having resources, they vote with money, right? And they put the money behind the ideas that they want to have. And you had to navigate that as a woman, a woman of color with different kind of geographical things going on, but yet having meetings. Like, are these same people capable of making that bridge to understanding these issues that other communities might have around surveillance technology, around inclusion in all of these processes, because they seem to don't do such a good job of it anyway, and almost don't seem the need to do a good job. on. Yeah, that's actually a really good point, because we need more investors to care about ethics in AI, because unless they do that, they may or may not be investing in companies that care about ethics. So for example, we've raised a total of $53 million of venture and strategic funding. And in my last round, I was adamant, which was about 18 months ago, I was adamant that we not only bring in investors that wanted to fund us, but that had the same core values around the importance of diversity and inclusion, but also around the importance of having a, a set of you know core values around AI ethics that we, you know, that we care about. And I ended up bringing in Trend Forward Capital and Motley Fool Ventures. Both have, you know, people of color partners and women partners, female partners, and they care about this. So they want to make sure that we are developing ethics in our technology and they prioritize that. They ask us about that. They celebrate when we do. So they care about it. And I think we just need more investors like that. And it's interesting when you mentioned the consortium group that you're part of and that there's ACLU and there's other organizations that are part of it. Because sometimes when I'm doing like my imperfect kind of studies, right? So I, I follow different people on Twitter and I, and I would see folks that are in technology, they'll talk about issues as if they aren't other people already discussing them. So they'll say something like, I don't really prefer this guy, but I'll just use him as an example. You know, Elon Musk with Hyperloop, he's like, oh, you know, why don't we just have underground tunnels where it's fast transit? I'm like, yeah, that dude, that's the subway. Like we already have that, you know, it, it just seems like they don't understand that there are historians out there. There's social scientists, there's philosophers, there's people engaged with the law that have already studied these issues and they'll act as if we have no work on it, you know, and it's not just him. I just use him as an example because that stuck out in my mind. But, you know, how do we get folks to understand and truly bring what I would call like that liberal arts perspective? Like, it seems like everything is very techno-utopian. So all of our problems are going to be solved if we just have a better app. And I'm editorializing a little bit, but I'm trying to understand, like, how do we combine both of these perspectives? Because I think you're someone uniquely engaged in making those kinds of connections, right? And you've done it throughout your career in different aspects. Right. We need that back to like almost where we started. We need this cross-pollination across disciplines, across backgrounds. It's the diversity of thought, right? And and we need people who are going to, you know, cross to the other side of the table and engage in dialogue. 
So we at Affectiva a number of years ago, we started what we call the Emotion AI Summit. And we started it because we felt that we it's almost our responsibility. We're creating this new field of technology. We wanted to create an ecosystem of, of different voices around the table. We're unfortunately canceling it this year. It's usually in the fall. We're going to move it out to 2021 because of the pandemic. But for the last three years, it's been phenomenal. We have technologists present, but we also have ethicists. We have psychologists. We have musicians. We have artists. We have people from all over the world join. And you bring these. We had, I, I moderated a panel last year of kids. You know, we had like an 11 year old, a 13 year old, and a 16 year old. And it was amazing because they also have views on technology. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they're growing up with this technology. So they had very strong views around data privacy and power asymmetry and, you know, access, you know, technology, government access to technology. It was just phenomenal. So we need these different voices. And, and I really, and that's again another reason I wrote the book. I just wanted people to know that this is going on and to feel that they ought to be part of the conversation. In, in your response, you mentioned the pandemic and having to push your event out. And, you know, obviously we're all in various stages sort of dealing with that. And especially those of us with international and global friends and family, like we're all experiencing it in different waves, it feels like. Like I always reference one of my fraternity brothers who lives in Shanghai, uh -huh. and he was sort of my canary in the coal mine, he and his family in January. And then it just becomes this wave, this rolling wave of, of news. But obviously we're we're more sheltering at home in various places where we're working in different types of environments and socializing in those environments. Have you started to notice or, or see any differences? Has this experience sort of confirmed some theories you've had, maybe given you new things to think about? You know, what, what are some of your kind of just general thoughts on on the pandemic and, and technology and our emotional states? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so can I start with the technology first? Of uh, course. Take start wherever you feel best. I'll start with the technology and then share my thoughts around empathy and, and leadership. So with technology, I mean, it is amazing how this pandemic has catapulted us into this universe where we are working online, where my kids are learning online. You know, a lot of health is, is health checkups are being done, done online. You're connecting with your family, you know, obviously vir virtually with your communities like church or like it's Ramadan for us right now. And we're having virtual iftar. So it is just amazing. And I'm so grateful that we have these technology platforms that can connect us, but they're very crude. And so I think there's an amazing opportunity for technology like ours, like Emotion AI, to bring this to the next level. And the example I like to give is, you know, the book came out a few weeks ago, right in the middle of, of this pandemic. So I had to, so all my book tour events got canceled. So I had to pivot, Startup Lingo, so I had to pivot to a virtual, a virtual book tour. And so I've been doing a lot of these virtual book talks where, you know, it's a conversation with somebody and we have audience, it's streamed live on social media platforms. And we usually have thousands of people tuned in, but I find them painful because if I was live in an auditorium, I would riff off of the audience's energy. I could tell if they're engaged or if they're like not engaged or, you know, they laugh at a joke. When you do this without seeing the audience or tapping into the audience, it's, I find it really just, it's, it's a one-way conversation. And, but if we had emotion AI and it could somehow capture these nonverbal signals from everybody that tuned in and it, it showed me in a real time, like 
chart or graph or bubbles or whatever yeah. <laughs> colors you know oh people just laughed or you know you know yeah people are engaged or they're losing attention so change the topic i think that would be very powerful and that has applications in learning and you know how you lead your team virtually and all of that so i'm you know in a way i'm i'm excited because it has again kind of leaped frog yeah leapfrogged us into this universe where we have to figure out how to make this work virtually i don't i don't we're going to go back to a completely normal yeah, life. Yeah, 100%. I, I joke with my friends. I tell them that, you know, because I've worked remote for a long time. So the uh -huh. applications of it are not new, but I was like, this is really emphasizing to folks how much this stuff actually sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's good in a pinch or, you know, it's good sometimes. But when it becomes your only thing, you know, I've noticed at least since, let's say, mid-March to now, we're people that were very quick to jump on like Zoom or, you know, Google Meet or whatever the thing is, they're now all like, can we just do a regular call? Right. Whereas like <laughs> no one wanted to do a call before. So in a weird way, we're going back to this basic thing of the technology. People are like, look, I don't want you to look at my house. I don't want to see your face. I just want to hear your voice. <laughs> Yeah. It is it is interesting because so Zoom fatigue is a thing, right? Because you're, I mean, at least for me, I'm stuck in these back to back Zoom calls where I have to be focused on you the whole time because we haven't kind of we haven't built an etiquette of what it's like to be on a Zoom meeting. Right. Can I step out for a bathroom break and come back? Can I yeah. get on the meeting? Like so all of these things we haven't figured out. And right now we're just like all like staring into the screen for like, <laughs> Like eight hour call. It's exhausting. I can tell you that. Like every night, I'm just like, I just want to go to bed. I'm tired. So, um, so we're, it's all evolving. We're all learning together, which brings me to the second part of like what I've really learned during the past few weeks is empathy has healing powers. And we're all going through this, you know, together, but not together. Everybody's experience, of course, is different, but we're all going through this in one way or another you know, together. And I just think that is a real unique moment in the history of humanity that we can rally around and, and do away with all of the polarization that exists in the world today. And I, I think it can bring us together in the way I've been leading my team and my, and my family. I lead with empathy first. So I make sure to be vulnerable and, and just connect with people at a deeper level and acknowledge that it's tough times. And I found that that's very powerful. So yeah. empathy. I think that's a great portion now as we sort of creep toward the end, kind of creep in there, is the journey to be CEO, right? You express leading with empathy. We kind of led with your anniversary, which is today. And that was, I think, one of the more pivotal parts of the book in my mind. You know, there were like a lot of little things that I sort of like anchored on. And that was one of them because, you know, you wrestled with this decision. I think what people would call nowadays has become imposter syndrome, right? Like people don't feel comfortable raising their hand or, or what have you. And so I want to like give you an opportunity to kind of share a, just a little bit about, you know, that decision-making process, like what, what finally got you to jump into that, to that seat, you know, or actually really take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we started Affective. So my co-founder is an MIT professor called Rosalind Picard. I worked with her at MIT, and but she's a tenured professor there, so she never left MIT. But we spun out in 2009, and we decided 
with kind of nudging from investors to hire a seasoned business executive to run the company. So he ran the company, even though like it was our technology, he ran the company for the first few years. And then he decided to transition out in 2013. So the question was, okay, who should the next CEO be? And at the time I was the chief technology and science officer. And a lot of our board said, well, Rana should be because, you know, it's her technology, you know. And I remember at the time I was like, well, I've never been CEO before. Like I didn't want to take the role on and, and then the company fails. I was just, I had so much inner doubt. At the same time, our head of sales who had never been CEO either, he said, sure, I'll, I'll do it. So he became <laughs> CEO. <laughs> and so he was CEO for a couple of years. And in 2015, I just had this moment where I was like, I actually went on Google and I searched for what are the roles and responsibilities of a CEO. And I created a bullet list of all the different functions. And it just hit me that I was doing the job. I was raising money. I was the face of the company. I had just given a TED talk around emotion AI because I knew the technology inside out. I was able to establish kind of product market fit. I was doing the job of a CEO, but I didn't have the title. And so, and I didn't want to go behind his back because it was not part of who I am and yeah. built it up. So anyway, so I went to him and I said, hey, Nick, let's be co-CEO. And he was like, that's a really dumb idea. Why would I agree? To that? But the more we talked, the more I realized, oh, no, I want to be the CEO. And again, we kept going back and forth. It took a lot of courage on my end. It was so outside of my comfort zone. But I also had a lot of mentors, a couple of mentors who were kind of cheering me on from behind the scenes. And yeah, four years ago to the day, he and I went to our board and he said, Rana's ready. I'm going to step away. And it was in, the minute I made the mental switch, it was such an easy sell to our investors and my team. It just made me realize that I was my own biggest obstacle. And there's so many obstacles in life. You don't want to be an obstacle to yourself, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah we got enough obstacles out yeah, there to deal with. Exactly. And so that was really a key moment where I realized that my inner doubts, the Debbie Downer in my head was was really kind of stopping me, I don't know, from just doing what I really want to do and what I, I'm qualified to do. Yeah, so that was the story. And I'm. it's been an emotional roller coaster. I have a lot more gray hair. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but That's why I just shaved mine off. <laughs> just hides it. Just hides, exactly. You can't tell. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we don't have video. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a lot. And I, and I think that story really stuck out because, you know, the fact that these guys, and I'm going to say guys, you know, I'm a guy and they're mostly guys. They're mostly white guys. They will raise their hand for anything. They don't care. And it's, you know, not judging that particular dude, but I've sat in enough meetings with folks where they'll be like, I could fly that plane. It's like, dude, you ain't, a, you ain't even a pilot. <laughs> but they don't care. They'll just jump in, you know, and I think a lot of us, the us being like, you know, women and, and people of color and other groups that are used to being overlooked, you know, we feel like if we don't check every box twice. Right. Exactly. You got to prove your, like, you got to make your case to even raise your hand. And I feel like they always just like, fuck that. I'm just going to raise my hand. Right. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think I need to do more of that. And that's why I, I've been sharing this story, because I, I think there's a lesson there for others who, you know, have just self-doubts. You don't. Yeah. Don't need that. I want to ask one more question before we get to the last two segments of this show, because data and big data are not only a part of the book, 
but they're also a part of our larger society. And we, we see this as someone that works in branding. Like I see lots of marketing organizations, advertising agencies, like everything is about making decisions based on what the data says and the big data portion of it. And, you know, part of, of what I think about is, is not just how big the data is, but how deep it is, you know, like finding these sort of invisible, what I call like invisible dots, things that you can't see. So the data is very good in my mind of telling me like what happened, less good at telling me like why. Right. right? And what role do you see emotional AI and a machine learning? Can we get these tools better at telling us whys than telling us what? Right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a few examples come to mind. You know, if imagine you know, you're in an online learning environment and you're engaging with this online tutoring system and then you quit, right? So the data we would have is that the student quit. We don't know why, but if you had this kind of emotion AI data along the way, moment by moment, you could see when the student was engaged or losing interest or confused or frustrated, which is often kind of a leading indicator to the final outcome. And that's true for telehealth. You know, again, there's moments, you know, we're on our devices all the time. And these are amazing moments to capture mental health information, stress, anxiety, facial biomarkers of depression. And you could use that as a lead indicator to a health outcome. So I think, you know, emotions drive a lot of our decisions, whether they're big decisions or small decisions, and being able to quantify them moment by moment can explain yeah. behavior. Yeah. Our, our lives are messy. <laughs> They are. In a, in a good way. I think they're beautiful, beautiful messes, right? The emotion part of it is is a big thing. Um, I was asked on on stage about, because I was giving this talk about love and magic and all this stuff. And, and this guy asked me, like, you know, well, how do I measure that? It sounds good, but how do I, how do I measure that and, and prove it? And I asked him, I was like, well, hey, my friend in the audience, um, have you ever been in love? Have you ever loved another person. And he was like, yeah, of course I have. And I was like, well, how'd you measure that? Right. 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 Does it make it less real just because you can't measure it in a way, you know, and maybe some of these tools will help us measure it, you know? So yeah. Yeah. what is the face of love and what is the face of being inspired or being in awe, right? Or that sense of wonder, because we know it when it's there. Yeah. And I, I'm just curious if we can quantify it. Yeah. We feel it. Yeah. We definitely feel it um, right. deeply, deeply. So yeah. I want to, in the time we have left, I want to get us to off the dome and off the dome are just some quick fire questions. They're like literally just off the dome. The first thing that comes to mind. So I'm going to read these off. The first one is in the book, you referenced um, having an Atari 2600. And I had one of those two. And then I graduated to ColecoVision and, you know, all these different gaming platforms. Right. But Atari 2600 was my very first one. And I think for many people, it was their first introduction to this stuff. So of these three games, and I'm going to assume you had them, maybe you didn't, so you can give a different one. You know, Pac-Man, Centipede, or Defender, which was your game of choice? Space Invaders. Space Invaders. See, <laughs> I should have thrown that one in there. That was a very popular one. <laughs> and Pac-Man would be my second. Okay. I played a lot of Space Invaders. <laughs> Now, obviously, you're the second question. Obviously, you're someone involved with technology. You use a lot of different tools. How do you think about these three in relation to 
how much you need them and why. Your phone, your laptop, and your voice control system of choice. You mentioned a few in the book, so I'm not going to give any of them plugs, but which uh-huh. are, yeah, how do those three <laughs> rank in your efficacy and use category? Uh, phone, laptop, and then voice control. Okay. Yeah. Now, you lived in the UK, and I have a lot of family in the UK. And ranking from a scale of one to 10, one being bad, 10 being terrible, how would you rate the food in the UK? (laughs) 11. (laughs) Like food in the UK, like what? (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, any 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 Brit audiences, I apologize. But. It's, it's all good. I tease my crew over there all the time. But, you know, we're Caribbean, so our food's a little better. So I have an out there. If I'm eating my family's food, it's great. If I'm eating just regular food out and about, it's terrible. So we agree, agree there. And I always give the UK folks shit, you know. <laughs> my cousins, I got I to gotta give them a nudge when I can. And the last off the dome is a choice, you know. You can live one life for 500 years, or you can live five lives for 100 years. Oh, wow. Um, I think I'd take the five lives for 100 years. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it's kind of an opportunity to reinvent. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. That is awesome. Thank you for that. And now our last segment is the drop. And the drop is just an opportunity to share something with our listeners. I always tell folks it's open-ended. It can be anything that you think is worthwhile, useful, funny, interesting. And I have a drop. I'm going to ask for your drop. Do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? You go first. Okay. I'll go first. My drop is actually Sinead O'Connor's second album. And I really love Sinead O'Connor and her first album, I was a big fan of it when I was in high school and she had this song, Put Your Hands On Me, where she had a remix with MC Light. And at that time in 1987, it might be hard for listeners to remember back that far, but hip hop was not like wildly accepted, right? So to have an artist like Sinead O'Connor that was sort of avant-garde and in my mind in 1987, kind of weird, she had no hair and, you know, all this stuff that was like, she was different to do a song with the hip hop artist like MC Light was groundbreaking. So she was on my radar for that. But then she came out with her second album, which most people will know of from um, Nothing Compares to You, which was written by Prince. That was her big song. But the entire album, which is called I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, is absolutely amazing. So for those folks who want to revisit that album or visit that album, if all they know is the print song, I would highly recommend Sinead O'Connor's second album. And that's my drop. And your drop is? I'll try that, by the way. My drop is, I want to put a plug for Zumba. So I think in these times, it's really important to prioritize self-care. Mm-hmm. And for my, my go-to self-care is Zumba. I've I love it. it. I usually do classes, but it's hard to do virtual Zumba classes. So instead, I will literally take my bike to one of the close by parks that's usually like quiet, not a lot of people there. And I'll put my AirPods on and I will just dance out in the in the sun if the sun is out. <laughs> yeah. So I would recommend it for people to try. Awesome. It. Zumba and outdoors. Those are two amazing things. 
So I want to thank you so much for the time and being on the show and sharing your journey. It's a great book. I highly recommend folks to go out and, and pick up a copy, Girl Decoded, and really connect with this journey because it, it is a, a journey from birth to this moment of all these different experiences. And I think there's lots of lessons for folks to take away from this. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having Rana Elkhalyubi, PhD, join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.